Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Hi, Gary. Hello, Guy. We are yeah. on the road and still doing rockonteurs. We just give and we give and we give, frankly. <laughs> but we are going to try and pull it together. We've got dates in the diary. We've got some days off. We've got some mornings off. And we're going to, we've got a lot of good names that are queuing up. Uh, they are now. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, now it's really, you know, after sort of years of being locked at home, and now they're throwing themselves at us. Now we're doing six shows a week. <laughs> They're in a holding pattern exactly. above our heads. Just wait for there, rock gods. <laughs> <laughs> so we have David Arnold today. David is a wonderful friend of mine, wonderful musician, composer, famous for his Bond music. He's done so many great films. He's won Grammys and Emmys. I mean, I haven't said enough, Guy. Fill the audience in on David Arnold. He was part of... There was a whole generational shift that happened in the 90s, where I think there was once again this sort of confluence of things to do, like film where, especially with dance music, and, and where it all kind of fitted back into that John Barry kind of world. And someone like David really utilised that and sort of brought this whole idea of Bond yep. music bang up to date. But just to name some of the films, you know, Stargate, Independence Day, won a Grammy Hot for Fuzz that. and Sherlock Holmes. Um, of course. A, a, a Tiger Who Came Tiger to Tea, tea with Good Robbie Omens. Williams. But he, uh, he also charted with a brilliant song that he wrote with Bjork. And, uh, and of course... Um, Chris yeah, Cornell. of course. Well, all those Bond songs, which are fantastic. So he's crossed into rock and roll and he's just he's an a good, good guy. guy he's well. also perfect for this. He's a, just a fantastic conversationalist and full of kind of tidbits. He's like, he's one of the most lighthearted and kind of uplifting people I see on social media. And there's a nice little connection with your dad. Oh, we'll yes, that's right. There to is. Talk about. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's, uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. David, you're inside the Rock Hunters after all this year of yes. listening to it. <laughs> it's one of those things where I know we've, we've you know slightly talked about it in the past about possibly doing it, but I, I, I've often wondered like I'm not quite sure what the in is because I'm kind of weirdly on the peripheries of a lot of things at the centre of some things sometimes, but in terms of sort of popular music and songs and songwriting, you know, very much on the peripheries. But it feels like that you know it's interesting when I do do them. It's interesting to me anyway. Um, <laughs> I disagree, but there's stuff we'll get to about that, which is to do with defining a period. But you do actually get the award for best tweets or social comments about rock tours ever when you said that the Coverdale one should be put in a museum and preserved for future generations. I played some of it to my son this morning who didn't know who David Coverdale was and didn't know who Whitesnake was, and he didn't stop listening to it for the entire time. I mean, it was absolutely... I mean, it is kind of comedy gold even though it's not meant to be funny I mean it's not necessarily funny but it is so hugely idiosyncratic and he's such an enormous character and I'm thinking at no point could you ever have predicted that talking to someone like that would produce such an amazing result I mean it's just absolutely <laughs> extraordinary I piece of, uh, call it broadcast but uh, yeah I think it is I think it's a definite highlight <laughs> He's got the greatest voice since James Mason, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but not only that, but the application of it, you know, the choice of words and the situations and calling you Guido. Guido. And <laughs> you know, my favourite use of that ever was when I was recording with him. We are doing some song and I'd come up with an idea for a bass riff. And it, I, it was nothing particularly adventurous. And he just said, crazy as I am about your playing, Guido, I'm afraid this isn't a Peter Gabriel album. <laughs> <laughs> and you said more's the pity <laughs> uh david i thought I'm we'd joking. we'd kick off with with uh, an effort for us to sort of sing our own praises as well as yours and the fact that we um guy and i played at the royal albert hall in london here last saturday and uh, what a stunning venue that is, you know. I mean, it's just architecturally to be inside that building and with those fabulous sort of mushrooms the, for the sound, the acoustics that they hang from the yeah. ceiling. And, of course, you've you've done two different concerts there, haven't you? An, an evening with, with David Arnold. Oh, actually, no, it was Casino Royale. Uh, screening and which with a live orchestra and also Independence Day. Yeah, we've done a couple. The biggest one for me was... I wrote their 150th anniversary concert, which was last July, and we performed it. It was the first day of what was optimistically called Freedom Day, do you remember? And it was the first time that we could have yeah. an orchestra sitting next to each other rather than occupying two-thirds of the hall because they had to be uh, distanced. And it was the first time that the hall could sell the hall to its capacity. And it was the most extraordinary evening. It was, a, it was I mean, it, I'd been writing it for about a year, 
and it was a celebration and a look at the, the history of the hall and everything that's happened within it. I've recorded it and I've mixed it and I'm hoping that I will be able to get it to other people's ears because at the moment it's just for the people who were there but that was certainly the you know my best night there I mean we've done film music things there I've done film music concerts there but this was like a piece commissioned by the hall for their 150th so like a lot of these things I I love a special effect event you know it's like I love something which is like unique it will never be 150 years again it's like when I did the Olympics it's like you know the chances of you being offered to be in the crosshairs of someone's, you know, potential composer or music director of, a, of an event like that in the town where you live, never going to happen in our lifetime again. So I like these kind of one-off odd things. 150 years of the Albert Hall being as it is my favourite venue as well. I was doing Casino Royale there with David Williams, was introducing it and he uh, came out on stage and goes, I'd like, I'd like you to welcome you to uh, Elton John's downstairs toilet. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> It's an extraordinary place. It's like the inside of a Christmas present. Who was the architect? Oh, my God. I thought you would have had a no, tune. No, I know. I, I, well, I, I did know. I know but... you know something about it because I remember what, last time I had a proper chat with you, ages ago now, which was actually at Gary's Christmas party, you were telling me the yeah. story of how the roof got put on the Albert Hall. I mean, one of the first things that I saw was the, the Iron Foundry was in Manchester and the dome, a freestanding dome, which was made out of iron, smelted and made in, and assembled in Manchester, was, you know, a couple of hundred feet high. And there are pictures in the archive of workers in those days don't forget there was no electricity there was no tractors there was no cranes everything was like ropes and people and horses and winches and and the people who were making it like had top hats and spats on and they were stuck on the top of this enormous frame which was you know the drawings were so beautiful as well you know the actual architectural drawings were so extraordinary and this thing had to be millimeter accurate because it was then disassembled from manchester put on horse and cart and, and trolleyed down to london where it was then hoisted up by ropes and pulleys reassembled on chocks on the big hole on the top of the albert hall and one by one once that dome was assembled knocked out with hammers one little bit a chock at a time until the thing settled onto the albert hall millimeter accurate was bolted on and that's still there thank the lord an amazing inspiring thing from conception the idea of it you know the conception of the albert hall as a originally called the the national as like a national center for the arts and sciences a place where everyone could come to learn uh, and to be entertained and to participate in the arts and sciences and it was called that up to the point when it was opened when queen victoria decided to announce that it was going to be called the royal albert hall and i think the original name is still above what was then the main uh, front door well, with the vna the vna museum is the same the victorian albert because we always think of that as a museum for old things yeah. but when it was first built it was it was to show the latest in british science and design yeah. it's, it's, it's an extraordinary place and you know playing in it we did a little uh, documentary on this concert and they said what is special about it i said i've been to so many things at this place and for that very brief moment when you are in there, you feel like it's yours for a day. You walk around it and yeah, it's your yeah. and it's your gig. And, you know, you walk around every floor and you look at the pictures that are on the walls of the people that have been there. And, you know, the room is full of the echoes and shadows of everything that's ever been there before. And you're somehow now 
imprinting yourself amongst those as well and you know those memories and those things and the the sense of everything that's ever gone in before i think re-emerge every time music is played in that room yeah, I first played there in 1983 with Spanner. I mean, you played there dozens of times, Guy. Well, with, yeah, with that's David it, because Gilmore, my you? main employer, David Gilmore, likes it. Basically, it's the point of exclusion of any other venue mm. in Britain. It's like the only place I've played with him yeah. for 15 years. It just feels wonderful, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think Eric Clapton is the one who's done the single most amounts yeah. of personal. And I thought, like... What I might do is to ask the Albert Hall if I could like be support to everyone who plays in the Albert Hall every night <laughs> and t and, <laughs> until I get one more appearance in Eric Clapton. Do you know the story about the organ, the apocryphal story about the bottom C on the organ? Uh, no. <laughs> that I was told this, that when Pink Floyd asked to play, for Rick to play it at Games for May in 1968, the bottom sea, because of the foundations of all the buildings around there being weakened from the blitz, that you can only play the bottom sea something like three or four times a year. And in order to play it, you have to have a signed letter from the Home Secretary. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that, but I know that, you know, part of that, that momentum of rock music in the hall led to all rock music being banned from the hall for about three yeah. or four years. And I think The Who had their show pulled at kind of like a day's notice the reasoning for it was that the um the staff at the albert hall at that point in the 60s and 70s generally looking at um you know classical repertoire objected to the manner with which they were spoken to by rock and roll audiences uh, and so they said well we can't have this so the trustees and everyone said well we're banning all rock and roll from here and they did uh, eventually it eventually got back and they wrote a little apology to the who saying you know you're welcome back here anytime you like but i mean the place is is there's just so many stories except I mean, the drummer him not so much <laughs> yeah and the other thing we've got we, we haven't got in common which is odd because it's like i listen to this a lot and um i was listening to george michael on desert island discs the other day and he was talking about his uh, childhood growing up with music and what he was listening to and his tallied very much with mine but what's interesting is it it's like we're a similar generation but but it doesn't tally at all with what you grew up with i mean it's like i know the the constant sort of touchstones in rock on tours is like bowie and t-rex and brian ferry and prog to a certain extent where mine was all kind of like like film music john barry musicals stevie wonder and queen and it's just interesting that when i watch top of the pops i know that the things that i was more interested in were not the things that you were most interested in. And you mentioned songs in the key of life on something the other day as being an absolute touchstone. Yeah. Which I would agree with, yeah. which absolutely was for yeah. me. And I'm sure Gary must have been. Yeah, but you know what? Two years makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, both yeah. of you are two years yeah. young. You're the same age. Yeah, yeah. You're two years younger than me. That just, that sort of moment of yeah. transition that you get from music yeah. into what feels like adulthood, yeah. Yeah. it just comes yeah. a little bit It was sooner, a difference so. between punk and two-tone you know and two-tone and new romantics it's like you know in that you know the, yeah, yeah. everything shifted so incredibly but also because what's fascinating about you david is because really because you do have those roots. i know it's very simple so you were listening to punk you listened to stevie wonder and everything but i love this idea most of the people especially the older people we have on this show right it's like they saw bowie doing starland top of the pops or they saw the beatles on ed sullivan and they ran off and got a guitar mm. and um got a couple of mates you what you saw you only live twice and then went got some manuscript paper and started arranging for full orchestra i mean what well uh, well, on well on top of that my dad 
didn't have any nice clothes really and my mum one day we lived in Luton and my mum sent my dad into town to buy himself a suit because he didn't have a suit and he came back with a guitar he came back with a Hofner very thin guitar he didn't play guitar (laughs) I think I was seven I think seven or eight and this thing got left standing alongside the uh, the fireplace but it was there out of its case it was beautiful red thing and when you watch top of the pops there's something there's something about an electric guitar in the right hands that makes it feel like it's a kind of magic wand of some sort you know that something happens when people are playing it and it's partly to do with how they look when they're playing it and it's partly to do with how you feel when you hear when they're playing it and i was looking at this thing on the telly and looking at this thing next to the fireplace and I picked it up and I don't know if that was the plan and he used to sing a lot and had a lot of uh, like cases of sheet music around mainly like sort of great American songbook uh, and they had w- what they used to have in those days on uh, where now it's tab then they would have uh, ukulele chords because uh, in dance bands you probably wouldn't have a guitar you'd probably have a uke you know as a kind of rhythm thing or banjo in sort of dance bands in the sort of 20s 30s 40s so I got a like a chord book and wrote down drew on the on the songs what the guitar chords were and, and learned to play guitar by doing that and it, i think in turn like amassing a huge amount of experience in in melody writing you know i mean those songs are so incredibly m- melodious way before things would be like a sort of blues sort of jam on a kind of single sort of monotone thing not there's anything wrong with that so are you talking about Irving Berlin and yeah Cole the great Porter? songwriters and then obviously pop songwriters there was you know that was what was on your radio radio two in those days was you know on a Sunday it'd be sing something simple Sam Costa I think it was who would yeah there's something that made me feel quite queasy when I heard that and I think maybe it was I think yeah. it's more not the sound of it but I realized that when I heard that it was Sunday night and I invariably would not have done my maths yeah. homework which had to be in yep. the first thing Monday morning. So sing something simple for hey, me. Hey, has anything changed? You've got film producers now saying, where's your homework? You know, where's the score? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like people said, like, what's your inspiration? And for me, it's f- fear and deadlines. You know, if I had neither of those, I don't think I'd write a note. I'm not sure that I would. I'm very happy doing nothing. <laughs> but were you going to the piano? I mean, where did you, did you learn music? Were you I trained? did all the usual stuff that you do when you're at school. You know, if you, uh, if you show some promise in music when you're playing the recorder, you know, so when you're five or six years old and you're doing London's Burning, and I always remember hearing alternate the clash melodies <laughs> alternate <laughs> melodies to london's burning and getting incredibly frustrated when the kid next to me couldn't either sing in tune or in time i couldn't understand why you couldn't feel where the downbeat was couldn't understand it and uh and so you know you're playing this instrument and then it you go to the secondary school and they say well you know you play that that looks a bit like a clarinet maybe you can play a clarinet so you play a clarinet and then you learn clarinet up to about grade eight and you sort of a lot of theory and then you do your o levels and a levels but i never studied composition formally i used to you know grab copies of scores from the library and listen to records but i kind of spent a lot of time learning by doing and luckily most of those things will never hear the light of day it was about eight or nine years from wanting to be a film composer to actually getting a job as a film composer. How would you how would you sort of work out arrangement at home? Well, in the early days, this was pre-computer, so you had two methods: one, you could write it down, or b, you could 
memorize it and play it track by track on a multi-track if you could and there's a guy called john rand in luton who was the organist at a church st joseph's church catholic church and he was the organist there and i heard that he had a uh, a half inch 16 track in his front room and he had a dx7 and he had a drumulator and he had an arp quadra and a jupiter 8 so like you know beautiful things uh, but was sort a of slot kit standard kit at the time you know like three synths and a drum machine and he let me record there on a tuesday evening before he had his tea i had an hour between six and seven while he was having his tea and my friend was like danny cannon was making short films himself and i wanted to be a film composer and he wanted to be a film director so he used to make little films around luton with with his friends and with me and i used to get the footage look at it kind of jot down what i thought the music could be and then i'd run around to john's on a tuesday night play it track by track using the synths because there were no computers and i had an hour and then mix it onto a cassette run out and then we'd put it into uh, these little films and we'd have little premieres of it and try and make it as professional as possible because Danny Cannon went on to he's the to create CSI. Yeah, he? he's uh, he's like one of the big guys in American TV. You know, he started off doing feature films, and then I think he's got about five shows on air at the moment. Just extraordinary, really, because he did exactly what he said he was going to do. Do you remember? Was there a moment? And it could be watching TV. It could be watching a movie. When you suddenly went. I'm actually listening more than I'm looking. This piece of music is extraordinary and I'd like to be able to it achieve that. It certainly wasn't intentional in, or as aware as you might think with that you know, suggestion. But I can tell you that the first three films that I saw were The Jungle Book, uh, You Only Live Twice and Oliver. Now, all of these films oh, wow. are extraordinarily musical and visually, you know, hugely unique and interesting. But the thing that I remember about all of it, especially with You Only Live Twice, was, that it was how I felt was how I felt when that music happened. And I, f and I noticed that far more than I did, you know, look, look, when you're sort of seven or eight years old. And the start of You Only Live Twice, for people who don't know, is like Sean Connery's James Bond. There is a, a big spaceship eaten by a little spaceship, and then you've got the song titles, and then you've got this sequence where uh, Sean Connery is, is machine-gunned to death post-coitly. And, you know, all of, these things, <laughs> all of these things happen in the first sort of five minutes of this film. You know, when you're from Luton, it's like, oh, I quite like a bit of that. Not the murdering bit, but, you know, going to all the different parts of the world where the Bond films went, seeing things that you'd never seen before. They were travelogues for people. They were proper event movies. And, uh, and all of those things, especially with, like, Oliver and The Jungle Book, it was the songs and the sense of the music and the visuals at the same time, which just made me think that cinema was, you know, like a little church, I suppose. And it's something that I could believe in and it was tangible and aspirational. And I think when I was when I was eight, I'd wrote in an exercise book, like when I grow up, I want to be an actor or a musician. And, you know, in a way, I suppose, as a film composer, you're a little bit of both. You have to find your way into the psyche of everyone. You have to understand why everyone is doing what they're doing at what point. And if I do something here at point A, at point F down there, it's going to make a big difference. So the reading of a film and the understanding of drama is a huge point and oddly with film music it feels like the music is almost like the least important part of the understanding of of what you're doing you have to understand everything else first and then yeah. and then apply what you do to the storytelling aspect of it i used to work on a lot of big films back with michael Kamen. yeah it's really interesting what a different 
There was one real big Hollywood blockbuster I worked on, right? Mentioned no names, but it was... Um, Robin Hood. What was extraordinary with the music was that everyone felt like the music was the last thing, everything else is done, we're fed up of it, we've run out of money, and like, no one was having a good time. And I remember we had, there was a schedule for mixing the music, and it ended with trucks leave depot with film. It's a team sport, yeah. There's other things where, where it's just the most kind of inspiring, yeah. uplifting... Yeah. You know, yeah. when you're all on the yeah. same page. Yeah, I think if Hollywood is your only frame of reference, then you're going to get horror stories, you know, as well as, yeah. you know, one, ones That's that are true, incredibly yeah. glorious. And, you know, it tends to be sort of like led from the top down. I think if you have a director who is careful and caring about every aspect of his film, then that sort of filters down through every aspect of the production. And certainly your best experiences are with people who care and, and trust, you know, the, the, the trusting of a composer. If you think about the amount of difference that can be made by music in a film you know your perception of anything you know it's kind of sleight of hand it's smoke and mirrors it's exposing the truth it's deflecting the truth it's drawing the character i remember watching a, a close-up once i think it was one of the daniel craig ones where there was a, a quite a long push in onto his face and watched it with and without music you know and at the point where music happens it opens up somehow everything that is going on in his mind everything that is going on in his character somehow music gives you the access to that and when it's not there you're not altogether sure no matter what with the best intentions of every actor that they are displaying what it is they're displaying on their faces and the way they do that is incredible i mean i remember writing a scene for um nicole kidman where her face acting <laughs> Like I couldn't believe the things that she was managing to convey within a sort of three-second thing just by doing things with her face. And I don't understand how actors do that at all. But you've got to know the reasons why they're happening. And, um, you know, you can change a perception of an actor's performance with music. Yeah, I mean, you're deciding what they're thinking, really, because if you're deciding it's a minor key, then they're thinking dark thoughts. If it's suddenly a, a happy little waltz you're going to play in that close-up, it's completely different. I just want to just talk about that arc that you mentioned earlier about when you said A to mm. F. Bond is a great example of when to decide the motif comes back mm. because we all know we begin somewhere with the motif probably after the opening adventure scene uh, before the titles but at some point in the bomb movie that theme comes back you know the classic john back well the monty, yeah, monty uh, Norman, 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 yeah. theme comes back comes in do you decide that how long do you wait i mean that's it's it's like a sexual act isn't it you've got to wait to that right moment <laughs> well i suppose if it is like a sexual act is there such a thing if you have it too much you get bored with it i don't know maybe it's not quite the same <laughs> maybe it's not quite the same analogy but does the director it, decide well it depends on the director when i did tomorrow never dies uh there were certainly the suggestions that were made to me were we want more of the bond theme because there wasn't as much of it maybe as in golden eye and you know we want to cement the bond theme a little more in this so can you use it a bit more that's the only time i've ever been asked to do it but for casino Royale, for instance I made a point of, of not doing it until the very, very... In fact, until we cut to black. So we don't have the Bond theme at all in Casino Royale until we cut to black. 
at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the, the whole point of that movie was it was a redefining of Bond, wasn't it? It, it was. was and, my, and my rationale yeah. for it was that, you know, that's the Bond theme. And at that point in that movie, James Bond wasn't James Bond yet. And if you start putting the James Bond theme when he's kind of making mistakes yeah. and then it sort of diffuses the, uh, the, the whole sense of the drama is that he's not that person yet. But you are so ready for it at the end of that film you know and and i remember and that sony were very nervous about not having the bond theme in a bond movie so i went back and i kind of dropped hints of it into moments where he has iconic things happen so the first time he gets a db5 in a game of cards he wins his aston martin in a game of cards i give you a little bit of it there when he puts the tuxedo on for the first mm. time i give you a little bit more of it but never the whole thing so by the time you get to the end of it you know it's an extraordinary explosion and part of that journey was with the song that I wrote with Chris Cornell because you know we wanted the song to be like the progenitor of the Bond theme it's like it was his father so if you went from one to the other it would absolutely make sense so it's kind of constructed of a sort of similar DNA but we wanted it to be a kind of brutal more sort of unsophisticated warning sung actually from Bond's point of view I don't think there'd been a Bond song up to that point that had been that you could have had James Bond singing it. And the whole point of You Know My Name was arrogance. You know, he's very arrogant in that film. How did you write it? Did you write it in the same room with Chris? It was an amazing thing, actually, because we went to Prague where they were shooting the casino scenes. We sort of did that thing where you hang out on the set a little bit and you watch, you know, it's not a jolly. It's a hugely informative process to be on set because you get an idea of how the director works. You get an idea where the film is going tangibly, emotionally, tonally. You get to talk to the actors about what they're doing because a lot of the time... You know, I'm assuming that an actor will know more about his character than anyone else. I hope they would. That doesn't necessarily mean it all ends up in the movie because the director's still got to make the film that he wants to make. But, you know, sometimes there are little things that an actor might bring to a part which if you notice and know about and you can reflect on in music, it enriches the entire thing. So Chris and I watched them shooting this stuff and then they showed us some of the stuff that they'd shot so far. And I had an idea for the title, but I didn't want to say anything to Chris because, you know, it's like when you work with anyone who's, who's brilliant, the last thing you want to do is give them line readings, you know. So I thought, so I had a couple of ideas. So I said to Chris, like, I'm going to go away and write a couple of things. Chris went back to his apartment, I think in Paris at the time, and wrote a couple of things. And a week later, I went over to his apartment and we sat down and I played him what I'd done. He played me what he'd done. And it was like the two halves absolutely fit together with virtually no maneuvering or bolting on at all one thing just led to the other and you know Chris had come up with like 90% of the lyric which I absolutely loved and I had a few ideas which we sort of tipped in and then I think his idea for the title was like something like it's it, you know something about if you're in the game because it's about gambling and I always wanted to call it you know my name because you know when they're always asking him, you know, like, what's your name? And he goes, my name's Bond, James Bond. And I love the idea of Daniel Craig's James Bond being so arrogant that he would assume that everyone knows who he was and he wasn't going to be bothered to answer. So the song is a warning to his enemies, sung by James Bond, and the arrogance is in the answer, you know, the chorus, like, you know my name, you know who I am. 
it also implies prehistory and the knowledge that we all have as as film buffs and and fans of James yeah. Bond. But I wanted to use that as a link to what was actually your first brilliant and I, I would say era defining hit, which is Play Dead, where Bjork actually asked for the dialogue from the main character to write the lyrics from. Yeah, she? Bjork's involvement. She lived in the next street and she had just left Sugar Cubes and was mixing debut so it was her first record it hadn't come out i think her only other records apart from sugar cubes had been with 808 state and uh, i was sharing a flat with danny the director of the young americans at the time we were in Belsize park uh, a basement flat and we were thinking about who could we get to sing this song i'd come up with an idea for the song and danny had hated it i played it to him at the start of the process and he hated it and then at the end of the process when i, I played it to him again and then he loved it I didn't it's a change brilliant anything. song. It's a brilliant I didn't change, song. Didn't change anything. That song became the template for basically for that a certain type of night, all the way to things to like Nightwares on Wax to Millennium by Robin mm. Williams. It was an mm. absolute sort of genre-defining song. I would well, say. Well, you're very kind. I mean, it was one of those things where I felt like Massive Attack had got there first, and 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 and, and, and I, I felt yeah. like oh fuck, it's like you know they'd made Unfinished Sympathy, and I thought that's the record I'd want to make. For me, that was the one. And, um, you know, the use of like, sort of dark kind of churning strings and is, uh, you know, an amazing vocal. I'd like to point out, as a bass player, I just want to point out, I love that you can tell that's Jar Wobble from space. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was very, it was very interesting with, uh, with John because he, he came around to our little flat and sat on the edge of the bed and we were playing around. I had the, you know, the basic sort of chord sequence and the, the, and the song as such, but I loved uh, Visions of You, you know, the, the track that he did with uh, Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And Fantastic. it was just absolutely hypnotic and felt like it needed something wonderful to root it, to completely anchor the thing. And, you know, he's a, an incredibly creative musician. So he came along and came up with that, which was obviously fundamental to the success of the record, I think. You know, it's just fabulous and deceptively simple. But, you know, the journey you get to simple is often very complicated. Mm-hmm. I think a man of incredible taste in terms of bass playing. So that yeah, was a that was a big bonus. And we said, like, well, who could it be? We thought, like, well, Kate Bush we loved. We loved Elizabeth Fraser. Cocteau Twins, oh, yeah. and we love Björk, and we found out that Björk lived around the corner. So <laughs> I, I, I put a rough of this track. I had a vocal, a melody line, and the reason why I came up with that whole riff and that whole idea for Play Dead, I actually there is a David Gilmore connection. I'd went to see Tori Amos at King's Cross, I think Paul it was, or St Pancras, yeah. I was sitting behind Dave Gilmore. I don't know if he was involved in, in, in the record that she was making at the time. And I think Nick Leclerc was there as well. They're all there, oh, all, right, there right. all there together. It was such an incendiary performance. I just thought like, I want to write the sort of song that Tori Amos would want to sing. So I went home that night and I sort of bashed out these kind of chord things, thinking of her energy the way that she would sit on the edge of the, of the piano stool and kind of sometimes like beautifully play it and sometimes hammer the hell out of it. And it would take you everywhere you wanted to go in, in terms of a performance. And that was it, you know, that was, it was just a thing. And it was, it was, and it was sitting around until we started on Young Americans. And I thought, God, I'd love to use that. So we dropped this thing into Björk's front door around the corner. And then she phoned up the next day. She said she'd be interested. So she walked around the corner to our flat. We played her the 
demo, showed her a couple of scenes from the film Danny had brought back from the cutting room. We had a few phrases written down. Play Dead, interestingly, was a student film that I did with Danny at the National Film and Television School when he was there as a director. So she took a couple of things that we said, went away, and literally five days later we recorded it. I mean, her vocal was mind-blowing and her lyric was, was was fabulous and what she did melody wise I would never have been able to get anywhere close so the melody that I had for that song turned up somewhere else in a completely different thing but I didn't want to preempt her creative brilliance by suggesting sing this you know but this was a big hit to get a hit out of any theme tune is so rare isn't it for a movie it wasn't a, a big launch movie was it no, no i mean it was kind of one of those sort of mid-budget british movies uh, i think uh, paul anderson at the time was another one of those and i think reservoir dogs came out around about the same time so there was this kind of wunderkind feel to cinema that you know there's all these young directors making things you know both danny and i have always loved songs and songs in movies uh, songs full stop and so we had this thing with this incredibly evocative uh, vocal with this extraordinary artist and i remember the first time i heard it on the radio it's actually gary davis played it on his sunday afternoon show that was the first time i'd ever heard it on the radio and i have to say out of all the experiences i've ever had in my entire life professionally that was probably the one that felt the more profound and still does you know to have something that you've written played on the radio uh, yeah. the medium that I'd grown up with, you know, the medium which had delivered every form of music almost that I'd ever heard to my ears. To be a part of that world was was amazing. And I think I've kind of come full circle with with the art form of music writing and songwriting in as much that I kind of settled on the idea about a year ago that the song is the greatest of all art forms. And I apologise to playwrights and sculptors and uh, <laughs> and everyone else, but I, I just think it is. It's in, you know, you think it's it's think how portable, how long lasting, how you know, you only need to see people singing Wonderwall, you know, anywhere, yeah. whatever you think yeah. of the song, you know, it's like yeah. people. It's this cultural sing. reach. Yeah, the cultural yeah. reach. Um, it's, is it's the it's the way that it can leap from its original intent and content to could be almost anything. It doesn't exist as an object. Yeah, yeah. But, but also, as art, you look at it as being a reference point for social history throughout centuries, you know, the, the folk music of our time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, folk music is always the best, I think. You know, it's like those things that are the most natural and the most simplistic things. The things that come to us most naturally are the ones that I think connect with us the most. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of melody. And I've often thought that everything that I write musically is to do with whether or not you can sing it. Because the things that I've always enjoyed most are the things that you can sing. And if you can sing a great tune, you know, this is where like John Williams is, is you know, and John Barry, you know, incredible composers, because you can sing them. You know, there's the cliche, you can come out of the cinema singing them. You know, it's that great, you know, the Don Black story. Oh, yeah. Don Black, as we know, is like an incredible lyricist. And it's slightly apocryphal, and I know a few people have told it differently, but, you know, Don Black in a, in, in, in a urinal in a pub where someone is uh, whistling Born Free, and Don says, I wrote the lyrics to that, and the guy says, I'm not whistling the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old one. <laughs> Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What you do, David, like with film music, is kind of actually a link with high art as well in the... I would say certainly in the 20th century, film music was the one place where in the mainstream people would listen to and accept quite challenging modern classical music. If you look at, you know, like post-Stravinsky type, if you look at composers like Herman, made very high art palatable to a mainstream audience. They started as being classical musicians in in Germany who were chased out by the Nazis, went to Hollywood and ended up having to write for films. In the golden era. Having to score Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the golden era of film music was definitely that. You know, it was a kind of pseudo-romantic classicist approach. But we've come a long way since then, you know, and embraced almost everything. I just did a track with uh, John Grant, and uh, he wanted to know how you could make the sounds for um, for horror films. You know, he, we were going through some horror films, and he goes, what is that sound? How do you do that? How do you do this? How do you make that? And I said, it's all people playing It's things. usually theremin, isn't yeah. it? Well, it's funny, it's not. It's usually like violins. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. funny you hit on that, because I was listening a little bit to uh, some of the stuff you were doing for TV, and Dracula, which you did uh, a few years ago. Yeah. There's uh, a little track on there, which is obviously a moment in the show, called Boxes of Undead. And somehow... With the orchestra, you're creating the sort of leathery wings flapping and boxes moving, and you're doing all the soundscape stuff. Yeah, I mean that's not that's not always the best approach. I think you know, I think you, I think you need to have a reason for doing anything in a film, and you need to know what that reason is. And the reason that I like it is never good enough, and it's never the right reason. It will have some effect on the drama. It will have some effect on how the scene is landing on what it's doing so you need to know the reason why every note is there but the thing that i love about real players there is something sort of vaguely unpredictable about it i know when i did shaft and i was working with i did some stuff with isaac hayes and his band and i had a band for that where i had uh, uh, steve jordan on drums and michael bearden who you know is one of the greatest sort of keyboard player mds in the world he did michael jackson's tours i think he's with lady gaga now did madonna you know we had uh, anthony jackson on bass mm. just an extraordinary group of musicians we did it at sony in new york and i had an orchestra in one room and i had the band together in one and i'd put the parts in front of them that i'd written for shaft and they played through them and it sounded incredible but then when i were when we were rewinding the tape or setting up they would then play it play it play it you know and all of a sudden it's like i don't know if i even wrote that you know just the application of that sort of genius and people playing together create something that you would never ever get if you were tracking it you know bit by bit and certainly those effects and the things that you're talking about the reason why they're so effective is that you've got something like 65 people giving a performance, a collective performance, and putting something of themselves, a lot of themselves, into what it is that you're hearing. And those are things that you can't get from synths and sound design. You know, and I'm not saying that it's an exclusive world, but you know, the only emotional, dramatic delivery you can have from music is from real plays. I'm certainly not saying that. But there is something quite magical when the moment happens. And weirdly, the theme in Casino Royale, my version of the James Bond theme, at the end of Casino Royale, 
was one of those moments that I'd played that again a million times, you know, the same instruments, same players, same room, never sounded the same as that first time we did it. I don't know if that's demo-itis, you know, but there's something about the energy. I mean, with Play Dead, we'd recorded the score and it was quite low budget for music and we only had like one and a half sessions, I think. And I knew that Play Dead was three minutes long and we were finishing at one and at 12.57, we put up Play Dead, okay? So we had a read-through, a record. And so the version that you hear was the band reading it for the first time and playing it for the first time because we didn't have any money to do it again. Now, there's something about when the band knows that that's what's happening and they sit up a little higher in their seat and a little bit on the edge and they plough into it. I mean, there's a few bent notes in there which you'd like to have gone back and fixed, but we didn't. Yeah, that's a read-through. Only you will ever know that. Only you will ever know that. David, after that, you get embraced by Hollywood and your career happens so quickly on the largest, grandest scale. I mean, you're, you're finding yourself doing Stargate, Independence Day, which you win a Grammy for. The shift for you was terrifying, surely. Um, Well, what shifts and what is different? Because the job stays the same. The job is you are in a room. I mean, this I'm I've been in this room for like 20 years up at Air Studios and we are in the middle of moving out of it because this is becoming a mastering suite. So my writing space is now moving to another room. And I've written loads of things in here. So I've written Sherlock in here, I've written Dracula in here, I've written Good Omens in here, I've written Hot Fuzz in here, I've written Bond movies in here. It's me in this room usually with the curtains shut, on your own, trying to solve the problems that a film presents to you musically. It's saying, I need help, can you help? You have to find out what that solution is. Now, no matter where I am and no matter what I'm doing, the job remains the same. When I did Zoolander, they asked me if I would do it in Paramount. So I flew over to Paramount, and the only place that they could put me was in the air conditioning plant room for all of Paramount's computer systems, stuck in a little corner. But deadlines and fear, right? So you you set up in the corner and you write because you have to, because you have to get through two minutes a day, three minutes a day, and you have to get through that for the next three weeks, otherwise you don't get the job done. So, you know, I love that phrase, you know, inspiration is for amateurs. You kind of have to do it. You have to. You can't not produce. So you can't wait to be inspired. You just have to keep writing. And so the job stays the same. It's a series of moving images in front of you and you are trying to find a solution to the problems that it presents. The only difference is on the big movies is that behind you are 150 people with an opinion. There are a lot of executives and you know and there's a lot of money at stake and if you're spending north of sort of 70 80 100 million on a film then a lot of people have got something to say about it. And I understand that and that's a process you decide you want to get on board with or not. And I've said no to some things because I didn't want to get on board with that process at that time, you know, because I know what it's like. It's really difficult and incredibly tiring and probably not good for you. Uh, <laughs> David, do you think you're in a a postmodern period where if you're doing things like Westerns or sci-fis, that there's groundwork that's already been broken by other composers that you have to adhere to, that you have to reference certain sounds you know like in westerns you know there's there's a sense of that old americana about some of those early 1950s films that you need to embrace well you've got the genre definers haven't you you know you've got john barry who kind of created the sound of spy movies 
he also probably along with Elmer Bernstein created the sound of the wide open American romantic space John Williams the sort of uh, post kind of golden age classical uh, romantic classical hugely melodic orchestral approach in the 80s you know Harold Faltermeyer and Tangerine Dream uh, all of a sudden you got a couple of movies that have got synthony scores like Beverly Hills Cop Terminator um, which create a need for electronic music above anything else which Hans Zimmer's kind of capitalized on mm. And then Hans Zimmer comes and kind of then has this hybrid of both, you know, and incredibly influential. But in between all that, you've got all these other amazing composers doing amazing things anyway. In terms of, like, do you have to? You never have to. I've never done a horror film. If I did do a horror film, I think the last thing I'd want to do is do it so it sounded like other horror films. How do you do it then? That's the challenge is, what do you do that isn't... Yeah. I've got to say, because there's a thing we do, you know, because we're on tour at the moment the source full of secrets and there's every night we play the piece source full of secrets and there's this bit in it where there's this fan, there's these two chords there's two lovely little rick Wright chords and they're absolutely film score defining chords it's b minor to g minor and i don't think i've ever seen a film with a spaceship in it that hasn't used those two chords together yeah <laughs> Yeah, they're fabulous <laughs> and evocative. And, you know, they do they do those things. You know, they exist for a reason. There is a kind of language, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. and a kind of an orchestral Hollywood sound. There is a sound of, of Hollywood. You wouldn't put them in a pop song. You'd put B major to G major in a pop song. You wouldn't put the two. And there's something incredibly filmic about that. So Yeah, yeah. But it's also interesting the way it's played because it's like I, I did a few scores in uh, Broadway, Shaft being the first one I did uh, using... The New York pool of orchestral musicians are largely pulled from the Carnegie Hall, classical world, or Broadway, pit, session world. Neither of those sounds sound like film music. So the amount of work you have to do in order to kind of force those approaches into the sound of film music, which is weirdly orchestrally neutral... You know, it sort of needs because it needs to sit alongside so many other things. It can't sound showy and it can't sound classical because all these intonations and suggestive elements of the performance makes you feel differently about it. So you're constantly having to try and pull these things together. London and LA have got a pool of musicians who play film music all the time. And somehow, even though they can go from classical to pop music and do all the sessions in one day, they might do a wheat bix ad in the morning, Star Wars in the afternoon, a Robbie Williams session in the evening, and then go and do a West End show. You know, they can play anything. But when they play film music, it sounds like film music. And it is, it is different. But David, are you hampered by what directors I, I don't know whether they they always do this i'm sure they do that they put guide tracks on their cut so you get when you first see their the film you don't necessarily see it in silence you'll see it with them giving reference points no. which which they can be in the temp dub as it's known yeah and then they which they can be incredibly married to aren't they yeah, the temp love is horrible especially if you've got like a tv budget and the temp love is a John yeah. Williams or hands him a you know thirty million dollar music budget. That's a bit disconcerting. Well, we know that you know the temp score is a necessary evil, and it's part of the job of dealing with it. I always ask people if I'm going to do a show that can you not put my music on it? 
because if my music turns up in another show, I sort of like it because I'm seeing it in a completely different way. I guess it's like, you know, when someone does a cover of a, of a song that you've written, you go like, oh, this is great. I didn't think it could be like this. You know, all of a sudden it has a sort of new life to it. When you say, well, can you write another song? And we want it to be like this person's cover of what you've done. It'd be crippling. So I don't like having a tent that's got my stuff in it. I try and get them to use things that are the sort of, diametrically opposite to what I'd normally do because it makes me reach further and also it's not comfortable but part of the reason with temps uh, you know the thing with temps is that you kind of have to understand the reason why they're there and what they're doing and it's not always that they want it to sound like that they more often want it to feel like that it's often for the pace for the, it's like it's what defines your edits isn't it yeah, yeah that's a big part of it yeah but in, in certainly in action stuff it's pacing you know we want this to feel more exciting you know those are kind of kinetic uh things you know but the the, the interesting part is when it's not to do with that when it's emotional dramatic story character driven thing you have to understand why this temp is there what is it doing it's not because it's got an oboe over there or a guitar over there it's because mm-hmm. there's something about it at its core tells you something about the character and it's you know i often encourage directors to talk to me emotionally rather than musically you know i don't want you to say i hear strings here or it'd be great if there was a guitar there you know i just want to know how you want to feel at this point because i know how i feel you know are we in agreement but it is a plate spinning exercise and all the plates are on fire i I want to give a shout out to (laughs) david mccalmont because uh, and it's also how you got into doing the bond films that you made you started with this thing called The Bond Project, where you reinterpreted a lot of the major theme songs from the Bond canon. Uh, and the vocal performance of David on Diamonds yeah. Are Forever, which opens it up, is astonishing. I mean, it should have been given all the awards. He's one of the greatest singers to ever come out of this country. Yeah, I agree. He's also my son's godfather. <laughs> really? Yeah, no, I love David um, and I work with him whenever it's possible. But it's one of those things, the reason why I made that record was that, like I said before, it's like I grew up listening to music, to songs especially. Any excuse I could get to be in a studio making songs, much more than making film scores, I think. I, you know, songs for me are still the greatest thing you could ever work on and I do love them. I always wanted to make records, so... Nothing happened until Play Dead happened, you know, and why would it? Why should it? I'm just another guy phoning up saying I've got some ideas and why would anyone listen? Uh, they didn't. Uh, and um, But once Play Dead had happened, all of a sudden people would say, oh, we will take that call and we will take that meeting. And I had a little bit of time. Uh, I did Stargate and I had some time between that and starting another film. And I thought, like, I'd love to make a record. This has given me the license and the the ability to make a record now with people that I like, you know, never mind on my own, but actually with people that I love. So I thought, well, I love Bond movies. I love the Bond songs. I'm not going to have to write an album. I can do this version of these Bond songs with people that I really like, and it'll be fantastic. So I asked David, the first three I did, I think, it was in 1995, I think I started recording. I did Diamonds Are Forever. I did the orchestral version of 
on a Majesty Secret Service before the propeller heads got it. And I did You Only Live Twice with Bjork because obviously we were just done uh, uh, Play Dead. So can I, can I just interject for one second and tell you a bit of my own personal history? Spandau Ballet's first set list when we played the Blitz and all of that included our version of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Ah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a killer tune. Isn't, isn't that I, well, what gold was? Yeah, I me mean, trying it, to write was, a Bond was, theme. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because it's interesting because uh, Seven Nation Army, when I, w- I worked with uh, Jack White on Quantum of Solace, and he said to me that Seven Nation Army was on a Majesty's Secret Service. Mm. It was, uh, and when you think about it like that, it's got that That's descending right. bass line, you know, down, 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 down. And, and Seven Nation Army is down, yeah, yeah, dum, yeah, dum, yeah. dum, dum. Not, not that far away. So his thing was, I want it to be like that. And it's an absolutely killer tune but I did those three and I paid for it myself and I took it around some record companies people weren't that interested so I did another couple East West picked it up in the end and then we basically finished it but I paid for it myself at the time because I just wanted to make the record I wanted to make and then we did this gloriously over the top video with David David in in a dress looking fabulous so fabulous yeah out Shirley and Shirley Uh, uh, And, and, and John Barry and John Barry gets to hear this all doesn't he I was doing something up at Air Studios and John was in Studio One. It might have been Eternal Echoes. It was one of his instrumental albums. He was mixing it. And George Martin, who I'd got to know very well from being at the studio a lot, George would do the most amazing things for me. If I was recording a film session and the directors and the producers were there, George would walk in casually at the back. And, you know, especially with with American uh, studio people, it's like touching, you know, the hem of God's frock, seeing George Martin walk in to a recording session that you were involved with. And he used to stand there and at the end of a take, he'd just look over and say very volubly, so the producers and directors hear it, because that's marvellous, David, because that's so good, you know. And they would all be like, oh, fantastic, (laughs) you know. Even Uh, if it was awful, he'd say that, you know, I mean, he was so brilliant. Anyway, so he just said, um, I won't do the voice. Uh, He said, David, John Barry's in Studio One, and I know you love his music. Do you want to come and meet him? And I said, yeah, I would, actually. So I got introduced to John Barry by George Martin. Oh, my God. And we sat and had a chat, and it was lovely. And I said, look, I've been covering some of your songs. I said, I haven't been doing, I took sort of six months from making films, and I'm just doing your songs, you know, and and do you want to hear a couple? And he goes, yeah, so I played them, and he loved it, thank God. And that was that. Uh, It wasn't a calling card for the Bond movies. It seriously wasn't. When I was doing Stargate, MGM were distributing Stargate, and the head of music at MGM knew that I was a big Bond fan. And he called me up to his office once, Stargate had finished and he said you'll like this and he wheeled in this TV set and it was the teaser trailer for Goldeneye that they just finished and I don't know if you remember the teaser trailer for Goldeneye but basically it was kind of like a sort of white background it was kind of vaguely Bond theme over kind of beats the suggestive you know dum 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 bit and there were words coming up you know it was a new era it's a new age you know need new heroes anyway the last word stayed on the screen and in silhouette at the back of the screen Pierce Brosnan walks along the back of the screen turns around shoots twice the letters spin around, makes the number 007, and he walks right up, comes into focus, out of the dark, into light, looks straight down the barrel of the lens and goes, were you expecting someone else? And then it just explodes into the trailer, and it was just like, oh, my God. I said, uh, listen, I said, if John Barry ever, ever decides to not do a Bond movie, can you just at least give me a shout? 
And he said, well, we've got uh, Eric Serrar on this one, but we'll think about it, you know, for whatever happens in the future. And so Tomorrow Never Dies was my first one eventually, but the uh, the connection was made uh, in 94, I think, and it was 97 when uh, oh. Tomorrow Never Dies happened. Fantastic. Did you ever use Vic Flick? Just explain who Vic is, Guy. Vic Flick played the original Bond theme on the guitar. And I must say, I have actually played the Bond theme on the bass along with him. Because really? he's theme. been mentioned on this show before <laughs> with John, when Johnny Marr yeah. came on, because Johnny's been doing it recently. With her, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I spoke to Johnny while he was he was at the studio and I was here when he was starting to do No Type to Die. So we had a, a talk about the right way to do it. Uh, he does it a very different way, like just in terms of amp-wise and guitar-wise. I always thought when I heard it that it was like a, a Strat. No, it's a, a weird guitar. It's a because weird, it's, often a thing I know, where it looks a, like a bit of a, surgical equipment. It's probably it that guitar that was in the corner by your fireplace at one time, David. <laughs> yeah, it was an acoustic wow. guitar with, uh, with a, with a wow. pickup and e- extremely heavy strings. The thing that I found out, the secret to it, is that you have an incredibly heavy pick and you get the the heaviest gauge strings that you can have. I've got a guitar that I only use for the Bond theme. It's set up because the bottom strings are like 58s or something. You know, it's just like inc- like rope. I would imagine that the sound choice would have been Vic's. You know, it was his guitar. It was his amp. Uh, and so he would have chosen to have that sound as a sound but you know if you if you listen to sort of hit or miss you know the sound was very much on that as well you know the one that goes and you got those like pizzicato strings that i did with adam faith songs you know so that sound was definitely a part of the john barry seven anyway but i think the reason why i didn't phone vic is because being a guitar player who doesn't want to play that? You know, every guitar player I've ever come across in the whole world says, listen, if ever you do another one, can I just play? Yeah, yeah. Can I play? It's because it's so not hard. That's but, you but the, on the record. The sound, yeah, it's me. And um, I have this one guitar that I use just for that. And it took a while to get the sound sorted out. I started out with strats and I go, there's something nasal about that that wasn't really working. Um, and then I sort of dug into the history of, of, of how Vic did it and where they were and the sort of strings and the... And, um, I'd done a version actually with uh, Adrian from Portishead, Adrian Utley. He had a 335 and a Fender Twin. And it was the closest that I'd heard at the, at, at the time. And it was just such a beautiful tone that he had. And so I went down that road. I bought myself a Fender Twin and this big fat sort of uh, semi-acoustic Gibson. Uh, I think it's a 135 with super heavy strings. Uh, and you just hit it as hard as you can. And the other thing is that the chord at the end that everyone always goes... You know, that brings and they think like, but when you listen to the John Barry arrangement of that tune, the very last chord is like someone getting kicked in the face. It's the hardest <laughs> bang. Yeah, it's yeah. like, and so whenever I play that live, I do it from the, the, the toppy down at the bottom of me as hard as I can, and it lifts the strings out of the saddles. But you need that amount of aggression for it to work. So this is all stuff that Vic would have done. But I think he sold the guitar. Oh. I think it. Um, I think he sold the actual original guitar. But yeah, I mean, it's just an extraordinary iconic That last noise. chord is a beautiful looking chord because it's your fingers go down one fret and one string. Each note. It's a yeah, lovely looking yeah, chord. It's yeah. very easy. Yeah. It's one of the easiest guitar solos to play because there's very there's very where did it come from what, what's what's the reference for that from john barry i mean it was like... what for the for the chord or for the yeah. uh, well he yeah. would have no he would have notated all that you know i mean john's background was very you know he loved jazz and but just thinking 
No, I think we're talking later now because I'm just thinking of Ted Astley, right? Oh, writing, here we go. Oh, there's the, a link for you. Uh, uh, who wrote The Saint and, yeah. uh, and, and Danger and Man. And a show that you and, did, um, yeah. that you did a remake of. Uh, yes, that's our yeah. connection, isn't it? It's, I suppose. It's pretty I mean, tenuous, it's yeah. uh, we, We've never... We've, yeah, we've never done it. I, mean, I must be the only person on here that's never worked with Guy Pratt. No, we haven't. No, we oh, haven't. hang on. So, because he did, he did a remake of Randall and Hopkins, yes. did he? Which I was in. I and he wrote the original. And I actually did do a bit of music for it with Alex Patterson from the Orb. We scored the Heaven bit. So, yeah, yeah. we've been on the same project, but yeah. no, we've never worked together. Yeah, but I just did the theme song for that, and um, with uh, Nina Pearson from the from the Cardigans, uh, and. Um, yeah, that was like, you know, I mean, I always loved that show anyway, but like theme tunes, even in the theme tunes that I've done for the TV shows that I've done, whatever you think of them, I try and write a tune. You know, I think that melodies and theme tunes are the things that, you know, they're like the shot window of the of the show. You know, it's like the thing that you, that makes you want to go in and find out Certainly what's Certainly with all inside. those 60s shows, all those ITC shows, if you mention any of them to anyone, the, same, the first thing that pops into anyone's head is that little theme isn't it? They all have that fabulous little thing. Uh, can we just uh, just uh, shout out to Ted Astley and his connection with Pete Townsend? Obviously, he was Pete Townsend's father-in-law and that brilliant track that he... Oh, he, Straight he in the City. ...orchestrated yeah. Straight in the City. Do you know that, David? Off the Rough, off oh, the rough Mix album. It's like a full-on Gershwin just, string arrangement just no. over Pete playing an acoustic. It's incredible. I know you'll both appreciate yeah. it because we would have been sitting in front of the telly at the same time, probably watching the same things. But the level of excitement that you get from a yeah. great theme tune and then hearing it out on the streets and then yeah. becoming that character. But, you know, it's like you're a kid and they were, and you'd hear The Saint or you'd hear, you know, even like later on The Professionals, it's like you'd sing it while you were running around and, you know, throwing things at people. So but then, But then I think some, so there's powerful. also those kind of... Jeff Love was one of the writers, wasn't he, in the 60s, who did sort of comedy. Well, Jeff Love was, yeah, was a, a principally, I think, an arranger, you know, an incredible arranger of music and did actually did a great album of uh, arranged of, of Bond songs. But yeah, there was a oh, world yeah, of yeah, yeah. camp for... Lalo Schifrin. Very hugely original arrangers. Yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, but that you know, when, you, when we talk about samples and sampling, that... I'm not, I mean, I will very happy to be schooled on this by someone who knows more than I do, but I can't think of that many uh, records that have sampled electronic That's music. a very good point. You know, the records I've always loved have had an element of, of performance. You know, they've, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the opening of the, you know, the Snoop Dogg, for, I think his first single, it just drips a vibe, you know, people playing and grooving in a, in, in a studio and that humanity, the thing that makes it work, that's why it's being sampled. And don't take this as a diss against sampling or anything like that, you know, or electronic music at all. But I just find it very interesting that um, in terms of the, the way that music communicates and what it does, you know, the more humans are involved, the more effective it becomes, I think. We all know, you know, your TV stuff uh, like Sherlock, but I really, and I just want to bring this up as well, because I think there's something about David Arnold that most people don't know, and that's your incredible singing voice. The Tiger Who Came to Tea, which was the cartoon from a few years ago, which you scored, 
has yeah. this beautiful yeah. song on it, a great song that you wrote for Robbie Williams, and and also the theme music is is so fantastic in that cartoon. But um, I got the privilege of seeing you play that song before it, the program had ever come even come out, and I think you did it sitting next to Don Black, who wrote mm. the lyrics. Your voice, you sit at the piano and you sing this guy. I don't know. The Don has a way of describing it, doesn't he? That he can't believe that voice could come out of that face. <laughs> <laughs> Someone said that to me. A friend of mine was, um, I did one of these sort of songwriting nights where, you know, back in the 90s, I think, when you're trying out material, you know, and uh, uh, and a friend of mine who was a bass player came to see me and I was, I just did like two songs or three songs. And I came off stage and he goes, Dave, he goes, there's something really weird about that. I goes, what do you mean? He goes, that voice coming out of that face. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. You're like gel. an angel. It when really you sing, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's quite weird, isn't it? Because. Yeah. It definitely yeah. doesn't look like and, that. And, but working with Don Black is that's, that must be a joy. The great well, only because he's written some know, great Bond uh, lyrics as well, hasn't he? Yeah, he's a master. He's a master. I mean, I've done three Bond songs with him. He's a master, and I've often tried to figure out what it is about Don's skill that is the, that makes it so special. I think it's because he has a way of making something that you think that you know already, that you think you must have heard somewhere that you haven't, you know, something which feels like it belongs to the world already. Um, and, I, and I keep, you know, I talk to people about it and I say, like, if you think about, like, Born Free, you know, like, Born Free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows, you know, three lines, mm -mm -mm. that's the song. You know, the economy of it, the getting to the point, to the heart of it, and making it feel colloquial, making it feel like it's something that anyone could have said to anyone at any point, and all of a sudden you're singing. You know, he has an incredible way of finding not only the sense of what a song should be about, but the shape of the word, finding the right yeah. word to suit where the melody is. You know, it's like a finely made suit. Everything fits. It comes out of his repartee because listening to Don Black speak, you know, he has that economy and he has that skill and turn of phrase. And rhythm yeah, that's the ultimate lyricist skill, isn't it? It's it's paraphrasing. Yeah. It, it's it's reducing to the essence of just a few words, something that would take us a page to write. Yeah, talk for yourself. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, with songwriters, especially you know that there is like there are the two schools. There are the confessional, this is about me, songwriters, and there are the songwriters who observe the world and talk about other people and other things. And I suppose going back to sort of you know. Your Jerome Kearns and the Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, that they find something to write about and they write about that something that they're interested in. And the thing that they write about seems to belong to everyone, seems to be recognised by everyone. That's what make them classics. I mean, they're not every single one a hit, but the ones that do kind of stick around, you know, for a very, very long time. And it's interesting. Those are the ones that, that everyone covers. Yeah. You know, it's like if it's difficult, I suppose it's difficult to cover someone's song if it's specifically about their yep. experience yep. and what they do. But, you know, it's the great joy, I think, having someone cover your song is one of the great joys. I've had very little. <laughs> well, it, David, honest, let, but, what's, uh, uh, <laughs> what's next for you? Uh, I've just finished a... Do you remember Fletch, that movie in the yeah. 80s with Chevy Chase? Yes, I love that uh, film. They've just uh, done a new one of that with John Hamm as Fletch. And I've done that. And the music for that is... I wanted that to be 
somewhere between like if if Henry Mancini was in an LA garage <laughs> band in the 60s so that's what that's like and a couple of days ago I just finished this new show for uh, the BBC and Netflix called Inside Man which is uh, Stanley Tucci and David Tennant which is a Stephen Moffat kind of twisty thriller which is very goes to some very unexpected places and um did the theme tune well i've written the, i've scored the film and uh did a song for it with uh with john grant who whose voice i absolutely adore uh had a lovely time with him and in a couple of weeks time we're starting the second season of good omens which is the uh, uh david and michael sheen uh thing neil for, gaiman. For, for amazon neil, neil gaiman thing is that something you do when you said if henry, henry mancini was in a 60s garage band is that something you often do you give yourself a brief for when you're going to score something. Well, I something. think part of the job is what music am I going to write? And part of the job is, like, what's it going to sound like? You know, because you could write something, you could write a melody and a chord sequence, you know, you could write Born Free on a piano and you could play it in a piano or you could play it fully orchestral or you could do it with a choir or you could do it in a sort of jazz style, you know. So you have the material and then it's like, well, what do you do with this? You know, like, how do you, what it's going to fit and sit with and become a part of the texture of the film. You know, you have to understand the DNA of the movie and how do I fit in with that? Where do I live? Mm. And I mean, I didn't know this, but um, in the depths of my ignorance, uh, that apparently there are 28 Fletch books. And um, wow. Uh, and this is a sort of back to the books kind of Fletch. It's still funny. It's still John Hamm. Uh, but I wanted it to kind of swing, but I wanted it to swing in a very irreverent way so i've got like loads of old um like very old like vox continentals on it and sort of trashy guitars and you know kind of trashy drums and and a sort of big band is is the director going to come to you and say this is the sound i'm thinking or are you at the position now in your career where people go what ideas do you think well it really does depend on the director and the project sometimes if it's a huge budget you've got a lot of people telling you what they think it should be like this was not a huge budget and it was a director that i worked with before greg matola who i did paul with and he had done super bad before i don't know if you know seen that film oh Um, yeah 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 uh, and um uh and he's a lovely lovely man and his whole thing is i trust you and that's the best thing you can do. It does mean that you are entirely responsible for everything. You can't say, well, he asked me to do it like that. But, you know, part of the joy of doing it, if you're doing this job, you're doing it because you want to have to come up with these solutions. You know, there's very little point in being a film composer and then just doing line readings of what other people are suggesting you should do. It's just, that's an arranger's gig. So I'd seen some footage, I read the script, I had a talk with Greg, and I'd walked around for about three weeks not knowing what it was going to be and actually getting quite worried until I decided that that's what it was going to (laughs) be. I don't know where it comes from any more than a song does. Mm. You know, it's like it just, it it arrives in your brain and uh, you have to allow that process to happen. Because Bernard Herrmann, he did, it was either The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone, one of those. And apparently, didn't he have, because it was just to him, just a TV thing, he had a thing where he said, right, for this week's episode, I'm just going to use a flute, harpsichord, and a bassoon. Yeah. And that was very it. So idi- whatever he wrote. Yeah, a yeah. very idiosyncratic composer. And it was a great interview with um, Hitchcock when he was talking about his relationship with Bernard Herrmann. Uh, and he was saying, like, oh, I hate composers. You know, they'll sit down with a piano and they'll, 
tell you that this is what the flute's going to be and this is going to be played on a horn and this is going to be played on strings and then you get to the recording session eight weeks later and you don't like it and they say well it's too late now we've recorded it all you know nowadays it's all very very different you have to kind of demo everything you have to almost like do the job twice you have to compose it write it arrange it and then be a master of the mock-up as well you know so you have to be able to make things sound as close to the finished thing as possible and then you know the next terrible thing that you hear is like well why do we need to pay for an orchestra when this sounds you know pretty good <laughs> <laughs> i just want to ask another question quickly was are you sometimes look thinking what i need is this genre of music on this tv show or film and then going and having to teach yourself what makes that genre what it is I think what makes a good film composer is someone who has grown up absorbing lots of different styles of music. And I think growing up in a household where there was music all the time, whether it was radio or the record player, there was always music. And it was sometimes it was music from shows, sometimes it was musical theatre, uh, film scores, classical music, classic songwriting or radio Two, as it was in my day when you know it was on where you would have a lot of kind of principally songs you know in those days it was principally songs so your exposure to melody and to different styles of music was was enormous and you didn't have to search for it it was there when you put the radio on you know it's like no one had curated a, a playlist for you so you were you know kind of isolated in a way in a world of, of like I like this kind of music so that's all I want to hear so constantly being surprised by what was on the radio and absorbing I suppose absorbing all that I mean I used to play in pubs and clubs you know you'd play a four-hour set and you'd have to play covers from every kind of uh, genre you could think of because you knew that you know, two hours in, someone drunk would walk up to you while you were singing and say, do you know any Eagles? And then do you know any Roy Orbison? And then do you know any, the three degrees, you know? And you'd have to know them all, otherwise you don't get paid. <laughs> so all of those, you know, all of those things, I think, add up to, you know, I know a lot of songs, you know, and I think that's why I've come to this conclusion that it's the finest of all art forms, because if I can remember them, Mate, it's been a, such a pleasure having you on. And listen, I could sit and talk really? to you all day. Absolute you are delight. so brilliant to listen to. And I hope our audience have really enjoyed it. You're very kind. And that reminds me of another great Don Black line, which uh, he was introducing at one of these events. Uh, Tony Hatch was doing a medley of his songs. And, you know, Tony Hatch has got an incredible catalogue mm. to make a medley of. Anyway, it went a, a bit beyond the allotted time and uh, he came off to rapturous applause and Don got up and he said, Tony Hatch, um, you know, I could listen to him all night and for a minute there I thought I was going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great point to say goodbye to you, David. Yeah. Thank you so much. What an honour. Thank, Thank you, you so much, David. Thank, Thank you. you. I'll David. see you over brilliant. the heath and this time you'll be listening to your own episode. Thanks. Bye, David. All right. Thanks, mate. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. Bye, David. Thank you. He's a great raconteur, isn't he? Yeah, he's an absolutely dream guest, isn't he? And I, did, I, know. I could have gone on all day, frankly. Or just, I mean, I know, gone on some of us have got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> As I said at the beginning, we're going to keep this one going while we're on tour. We hope, you know, we hope. It's a, it's pretty intensive we touring yeah. over the next few months. Six shows a week. I know, I know, I know, yeah. I know. But it's more the traveling which takes up the time, which stops us from sitting yeah. down and doing our interviews. But we will... We'll... Our meticulous research, more to the point. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Ian and Ben, our producers. And thank you to Nick Mason for letting us have some time off to do this. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll see you next week. Yeah, good night from me. 
It's good night from them. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.